Welcome to the Art of Being a Mum podcast, where I, Alison Newman, a singer, songwriter and Aussie mum of two, enjoys honest and inspiring conversations with artists and creators about the joys and issues they've encountered while trying to be a mum and continue to create. You'll hear themes like the mental juggle, changes in identity, how their work's been influenced by motherhood, mum guilt, cultural norms, and we also stray into territory such as the patriarchy, feminism, and capitalism. You can find links to my guests and topics we discuss in the show notes, along with a link to the music played, how to get in touch, and a link to join our supportive and lively community on Instagram. I'll always put a trigger warning if we discuss sensitive topics on the podcast, but if at any time you're concerned about your mental health, I urge you to talk to those around you, reach out to health professionals or seek out resources online. I've compiled a list of international resources which can be accessed on the podcast landing page, alisonnewman.net slash podcast. The Art of Being a Mum would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and water which this podcast is recorded on as being the Boendick people in the Barren region of South Australia. I'm working on land that was never ceded. And welcome to the podcast. It's so lovely to have you here from wherever you are around the world. I want to take this opportunity to remind you to subscribe to my weekly email. You'll be the first to hear about the upcoming episodes and who's on next week and some other little gifts and discounts and other things that I like to share. Just head to the webpage, alisonnewman.net slash podcast, and you'll scroll down and see the sign-up sheet. This week, my guest is Sarah Hens. Sarah is a blogger from the Blue Mountains in Sydney, New South Wales, and she's a mum of one. Sarah has a background as a social worker and has spent many years working in the Department for Child Protection. Following a pregnancy that almost claimed her life, Sarah was compelled to record her own experiences with preeclampsia, eclampsia and a tremendous birth trauma. She used her writing as a way to not only record what happened so she wouldn't forget, at times being in the ICU and coming in and out of consciousness, but to work through her experience and to make sense of it. Initially, Sarah's words were only meant for herself. She didn't expect to share it. However, as time went on, she found that through sharing her own experience, she could help others and particularly share a voice from Australia. She also now shares others' stories through her blog, The Pesky Placenta Society. Please be aware this episode is quite full on. It does contain a lot of discussion around pregnancy and birth trauma, perinatal trauma, postnatal depression, PTSD and a near-death medical experience. I really appreciate Sarah's openness and honesty in sharing in today's episode. Thanks so much for coming on, Sarah. It's lovely to meet you today. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And I, I have heard that this is your first podcast, so it's exciting to have you on. Yes, it is. I'm a bit nervous. Oh, don't be nervous. <laughs> we get, Just pretend it's you and me. We're just having a fun chat Yeah, with like literally thousands of people listening. No. <laughs> Not that many, maybe a couple of hundred. <laughs> nah, it's all good. It's all good fun. So um, whereabouts are you at, in Australia? I am um, on Darug country in the Blue Mountains, New South Wales. Beautiful. Um, yeah. Yes, it's very lovely. I've been from Darug country my whole life, so I was on a different different part in the Hawkesbury and now I'm a mountains gal. Beautiful. I've never been there, but I've seen plenty of um, photos and, yeah, are you near the... Yeah. 
the is it the three sisters uh i'm about 45 minutes from there so i'm like at the yeah. lower like pretty much the first bit of that you could call a mountain is where i live and then there's yeah. lots more mountain after me yeah right oh awesome oh lovely that sounds like a yeah. nice place to live um so are you a fair way from sydney where you are then or the closer end of sydney? yeah right oh that's good yeah do you go into sydney much you have to go in often i was it was weird so obviously with covid we're all stuck at home you know for ages but um i went to the opera house for two different shows like three weeks apart and i haven't been there for so long and then i went there <laughs> twice in one month so that was pretty good i do love a city day because uh, i don't live there i find the city very interesting and like mm -hmm. you know you make a day of it but I live there. I think it would lose its thrill. <laughs> oh yeah, I couldn't imagine living in a city. I just, I mean, I, I mean, Adelaide. I don't know if you've ever been to Adelaide, but that's not yeah. exactly a proper city. It's like a big country town, basically. Everyone teases <laughs> Adelaide because it's, yeah, it's easy to drive in, so it's not really a city. Yeah. No, Sydney's <laughs> shocking. Like if you look at a map of Sydney, no one knew what they were doing when they were playing those roads. <laughs> literally like, like it was the first place that anyone drove like anything <laughs> yeah yeah they weren't con weren't considering the future when they made Sydney no. really where they <laughs> oh dear but yeah that's nice for a visit I haven't been there for a long time but yeah nice for a trip but I would hate mm. to live in a place like that I just yeah. it's not my thing I like a bit of space around me <laughs> yep same yeah yeah <laughs> So you are by trade uh, a social worker. Yes. Um, where did you first get into that sort of thing? Was it something you were always interested in being when you were growing up? Uh, not professionally. I think I have been like a little social worker from the beginning. Um, my mum actually said years like after I decided to actually study it, she was like, I knew you were going to be that because I was just always that person that like the kids at school that were having like mom and dad were having issues or like, you know, they'd always come and find me and like be crying on me in the bathroom. So yeah. I think naturally I've had that uh, vibe about me for a long time, but I actually went into it because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like mm -hmm. I, I was never one of those people that was like, yes, I'm going to be a doctor or a teacher. Um, and then... I don't know, when I was looking at different degrees, I thought, okay, this one's pretty broad. Like, I feel like I could make this work in lots of different areas. And um, then as I did my first placement was with um, in child protection and I loved that, which sounds weird because it doesn't sound like the sort of job you should love. Um, you know, but... actually, I, I can relate to that because I work on the other side of it in early childhood education. Okay. So, yeah, I have actually a great admiration for what you guys do on the other side. I could oh. definitely not do it myself. So yeah bravo yeah, to you guys like, yeah oh yeah man, it's definitely a job that makes or breaks you for sure sometimes mm -hmm. you're not really sure where it's going to go but um I did my placement there and then I uh, did another placement overseas and then I thought yeah this is a, a job that I want to do so I was there for nearly six years before I went on that leave yeah um, and I actually resigned my position a couple of months ago because the circumstances surrounding my birth left me with um some blood pressure issues that 
Mm. It's no surprise. Child protection does not help your blood pressure. Stay down. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I yeah. sort of gave that up recently, which feels, I still, it doesn't feel a bit real. Like I still can't believe I'm not going back. Um, but yeah, social work can take me anywhere. So mm. I know that I have heaps of options and lots of experience now. So yeah, I'm excited to see where I end up. <laughs> Yeah, no, good on you. And like I said, I think what you guys do on that other side, my God, like I yeah. I quit, um, I was working in a law firm just before mm. I decided to completely change and go into child, child care and early childhood education because I was finding out things about things happening in my town that I didn't want to know about. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm a very sensitive person and I find it hard not to take on other people's emotions and situations and experiences. So, yeah. you know, I'd be sitting there typing affidavits of people who are, coming through the court system for for doing horrible things to children and young people and I thought I can't I can't keep doing this and I said to my husband I need to I need to help the children like in my mind it was like yeah. help the children he's like but you are helping the children you know you're putting their perpetrators through court you're contributing to that process I'm like no but I need to have my hands on the children like I just yeah, like, I had this feeling I needed to be able to hold the children and you know pick up yeah. stuff and report stuff and do that side of stuff rather than you know, the real hardcore stuff, which I'm just not cut out for at all. Because um, I mean, I honestly, like I look at people that are in education and I just think you have the patience of a saint and I don't know how you do it. Like, <laughs> I was like, I'll, I'll protect the kids, but I don't want to look yeah. after them day to day. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we all have our skills. And I think knowing where you fit is so important because, you know, otherwise you're just forcing a job you hate. And now if you I think it's a really cool perspective too on early childhood. Like most people just kind of love little kids and love working with them. But I think mm. bring a bit of an extra uh, skill to it, kind of having seen where it can end up if kids don't oh, get Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it really it really makes your days so much more um, focused and more productive because a lot of people mm. have an idea that childcare, and, and I'm in a kindy at the moment, is literally sitting on the floor playing with kids all day. Like they think it's just some like fancy world of doing nothing it's like oh my gosh like no like people come in and do work experience or the they do their placement and they just go oh it's not what I thought it was going to be like it is yeah. it is really demanding work and physically but also emotionally and mentally you know you, you're focusing on these little people and it's not just I don't know it's it's such a broad scope of what you're looking at for this child um my sister's um same job as you and just hearing the amount of just the admin side of it but yeah that's massive like writing individualized notes for each child and Mm -hmm. every day I'm gonna be like people are gonna think I'm the most apathetic parent ever because I'll just be (laughs) like did you have lunch great good (laughs) did you have lunch time good like (laughs) yeah I think like I am I'm in awe of people that can keep up with that like it's just oh. mental and she you know she makes all her little activities and stuff she take in and yeah like there's so much passion that goes into teaching kids yeah. um passion that I do not have <laughs> so oh. I'm very impressed it's interesting how it all fits together isn't it how we all play yeah, our little parts and yeah no good on you I really have a lot of admiration for what you guys do I first discovered you on Instagram 
with your very awesome name to count, the Pesky <laughs> Placenta Society, which is brilliant. Yes. Can you tell me how you came up with that name? Sure. Uh, it was it was not my first one. I, I was actually thinking today about like how far I've come with the page. Like, and I looked back at some of the graphics I did in the beginning. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so ugly. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I had, um, yeah, I had another name initially, and that was like part of one of my favorite quotes, which I still love. But you know, it wasn't mine. And I think as the space started to grow and you know, people actually seemed to care about what I was thinking. Mm, I thought, yeah. no, I want to I move forward as something that's just me. And um, from the beginning of my pregnancy, I had the anterior placenta, which is at the front. So I would always call it pesky because it meant that, you know, I couldn't feel as much movement. I had so many trips to the hospital being like, he's dead, he's not moving, oh my gosh. And then the second, you know, the thing had gone, he'd be like partying. So yeah. I, I called my pe- my placenta pesky from from day one, um, but then I ended up diagnosed with preeclampsia, so it became like super pesky, as pesky as it can be, probably. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that I don't know. I was worried people would think I was making light of it, but sometimes mm. I do. Like that's just how I am, and I think it's it's quirky and it's weird, and that's that's me. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I thought, you know what, there are so many people out there that not just for pre-fancy reasons, there's so many issues you can have with your placenta. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, it's just a fun little way of honouring uh, the journey. Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, no, I love it. I think it's really cool because I think, I mean, there's so many people out there that everyone's got a different way of dealing with or processing issues and, and an account mm. that might be really um clinical and crisp and coming at it from a you know medical area whatever that might not suit everybody you know like I I sort of have a joke when I I talk about my placenta that (laughs) it's been pesky as well um it sort of had a I don't know what the official name is I've been trying to find it but basically the blood flow was compromised from about 28 weeks so then that meant that the baby didn't develop and basically he stopped growing Placental insufficiency. Placental insufficiency, yeah. So I sort of make a joke about that myself because my son, when he was born, he was four pound 14, but he was completely formed. You know, he had, his Mm. lungs were formed. Everything was developed. He was all there, but he was just really tiny. He had no fat on him. He come out like, (laughs) looking like a scun rabbit, like my dad said. Like like these tiny little things. And you could see his diaphragm, like when he was breathing, like you could see every little muscle and everything inside him. So when people still, he's quite little now. Um, and they'll say, oh, you know, he's a little, little tacker. And I'll just say, oh yeah, my placenta kind of stopped working. You know, (laughs) I I say it as a bit of a joke, like, Um, so yeah, I can appreciate where you're coming from. I think it's good. I think it's good to share in that way. share a little bit more about that experience for you finding out you had that anterior placenta and and sort of how things progressed from that point yeah so um I had 
well, I looking back now, I had high blood pressure from like the beginning of my pregnancy because um, life was quite stressful when I got pregnant and stayed so for probably about half the pregnancy with a lot of things happening in life. Um, so I was pretty frequently stuck in hospital for the blood pressure profiles where they keep you there for like three or four hours and check it. Um, yep. So I was used to that. And frequency is something that like, it was mentioned when I booked in because they run through the symptoms and keep an eye out, you know, for this. But I didn't, they never really went through what it was, what would happen, like, mm-hmm. you know, anything like that. So I knew it existed. I knew it was serious. I knew I needed to look out for it. And I am on the anxious side of the spectrum. So I was constantly worried anyway. Like pregnancy just amplifies any mental health that you have, what in my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was constantly, you know, panicking that I was going to get sick or something would happen and, and all that kind of thing. And then when I started to actually get symptoms, you know, I was going, oh my gosh, like, am I just making a big deal out of this because I'm anxious or is this really a thing? And, mm-hmm. you know, every appointment I'd run all this stuff by the OBs and I wasn't seeing the same person consistently because I was just booked into a public hospital. Yeah. Um, and towards the end of the pregnancy, I stacked on weight really fast which is another symptom because you start to swell and you get the edema and all that kind of thing mm-hmm. but the conversation sort of turned to like trying to make me go to an obesity clinic instead and, uh, and I yeah. was like no like this is not the same like I know what's healthy and what's not and I wasn't in like the, the peak of fitness when I got pregnant I'll be the first one to acknowledge that but this was different like it was yeah. just so quick and I had all these other things like in all the pre-fancy symptoms there was only one that I didn't have in the end um and so I just didn't feel like I was being taken seriously and I went to a different hospital um Mm -hmm. which has they're more focused on women's health and they're the high-risk hospital for a huge geographical area and so I went in and I was diagnosed that day um and I was there for about a week my blood pressure still is a mystery like every doctor I see they're like that's not possible and I was like oh it happened um and then my son was born right on 35 weeks. Um, I got very sick very quickly and I died. And I, I actually went into the realm of um, eclampsia, which is where you start to seize. And so that happened literally a few minutes after they came and checked me. So the timing was all just perfect. Um, and yeah, so it bird just flew my window. Um, <laughs> It was all very fast and scary and and um yeah just crazy and I think it took me a long time to process what had happened um but that sort of then led me to this world of perinatal trauma and um the online space has been so helpful for me I don't know anyone literally in my personal life who's had a similar story like there's mm-hmm. no one lots of people like to tell you they know how you feel when they actually don't yeah um, yeah and it's always well meant but it's not the same and that's what mm-hmm. I keep saying like yes trauma you own that but it's not the same and so I think finding people who, who could say actually oh my gosh that happened to me and there's so many intricacies in processing your trauma that I think a lot of people generalize and when you find someone who can be like no I had that exact thought like it's just really it's comforting and it makes you feel like you're not crazy 
Um, yeah, that's so, it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think too, like I've been left with lifelong problems. Like I, I will be on blood pressure medication till I die, uh, which is more likely to be from like a heart attack now. And yeah. you know, there's just so many things that preeclampsia makes you vulnerable to forever. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's it doesn't end with the birth. I think for some yeah. people it does, and and that's great. But for me, you know, I'm in that sort of tiny category of people who just are never going to have normal blood pressure um mm. and that's still something I'm cranky about on some days yeah but yeah, it's easily manageable I think it's just another thing that I have to think about now and mm. when you become a parent like your brain's just going 100 miles an hour as it is and then mm. you've got to try and remember your own health which um <laughs> is yeah, it doesn't come first anymore does it it's no. yeah. so that's what like I have to have reminders on my phone like to take a pill and I've never had to do that before but yeah you know, <laughs> it's just how my brain works now yeah yeah, yeah so I can that's, relate to that. that's a real like brief summary of it um I mean I have the whole story typed up for, for people to read on my website but yeah um, sure yeah yeah that's probably the, the, the quickest I can summarize what happened <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. You know, this the preeclampsia. I was the same. Like people would mention it and say, "Oh, yeah, watch out for this." Whatever, but it was almost like a passing comment, it, and it wasn't explained that if this did happen, then this, this, this would happen, and we'd have to do this, this, and this. Like it was just really general. Um, and I think I knew one girl that had to get induced because she had it, but it was like, oh, I didn't really ever understand what it was. And then mm-hmm. when you're saying there about it basically went from preeclampsia to actual eclampsia and then it's the thing that now you're dealing with for the rest of your life I actually didn't know that um so yeah I'm pleased that you're sharing this information because we're learning something (laughs) the the eclampsia side of things is um not I mean it's not as common like preeclampsia is a five to eight percent of all pregnancies so it's like not a lot but also a lot when you think of how many pregnancies there are and yeah. then eclampsia is a, a very small percentage of that. And I think on paper, I don't think they would have diagnosed me with that because it sort of started to happen as they were delivering him. So I think they managed to sort of stop it um, in time. But I did. So it was like my bottom half started freezing, but my top half didn't. It was wow. strange. It was like I was trying to do sit-ups, like, but I couldn't control it. Um, right. But that's not like talked about the only thing I knew was there's like an episode of Downton Abbey where one of the characters dies from eclampsia and that's all I was like wait a second like this yeah, is right. that thing they were talking about so like it's really not um like preeclampsia in and of itself isn't talked about enough but then mm-hmm. for the people who have that next step um, of eclampsia like it's even more quiet so mm. um, yeah I try to be as honest as I can just because people need that like I need it and that's yeah. what helped me go, okay, I'm going to be all right. Like, I can do this. So, yeah, I'm a very open book. Yeah, no, <laughs> good on you. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I often say that it's like the people that are capable of sharing, it's not like it's not like you sh- you're obliged to do it or you have to do it, but it's good if mm. you can do it for the people that can't share necessarily. So I love that you can do it. And I'm, yeah, thank you for doing it. Um, just on that, was that, um, was that Sybil? Did she have preeclampsia? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So they, and they, if I watched the episode after, I think my son was a few months old oh, and I gosh. was watching through it again and I was like, okay, like I can do this. Get like, ready for it. Yeah. <laughs> so 
the oh my gosh like the whole I just cried and cried the whole way through because I think I have these moments where like I just realized oh man I'm gonna cry now I just realized how close I was like and that's such Mm. a scary thought and watching it you know in a big show with all these famous people like it was just a bit surreal kind of going Mm. oh my gosh that was me that was you yeah and I mean obviously in the show she passes away and there's a lot of people that do and and I was so close to that and so I think Mm. the feeling of getting that close and then coming back is like its whole own category of confusing (laughs) so I think being as open as I can about it because I know that no matter how stupid I think a thought is or how dark it might be like someone else out there has either had it or is having it right now Mm. um and I think that's you know you've got to have people who can go like you're not weird you're not crazy you know Mm. this is what processing looks like is what trauma does to our brains yeah. Um. You know, trauma is my bread and butter. Like that's what paid my yes. salary yeah. many, many years. Yeah. And so I know it very intimately on an academic level and personally. But then mm. I sort of had these two halves of my brain where, well, literally we have two halves of our brain. But it was sort of like, okay, there's the emotional side. It's freaking out, and you know, oh, what's happening? I don't know who I am anymore. And then there's the logical part of my brain, like we studied this, we know this, like we know what's <laughs> going to happen next. But it was sort of <laughs> two halves that were constantly surprising each other yeah and not communicating very well yeah. um so it was very strange going through that like knowing trauma as much as I do mm. um and that it's, when it's you all bets are off like it's yep. just totally different when you're the subject of it so yeah yeah I think there's a lot um a lot of sort of niche stuff I guess that I can relate to for people um and in an Aussie context like Mm -hmm. the preeclampsia world and the perinatal trauma world online is so dominated by the US which is not a bad thing like they have a lot of people um but I think it's really nice when you can find someone that understands your culture and your geographical context and our health system is different and like all that sort of thing so I think it's been nice to be able to slot into that space that was kind of empty a little mm. bit um yeah. and obviously there are a lot of survivors and stuff that have accounts but I think that's more about <clears throat> just their their life and that kind of thing whereas I wanted something that was more open to help people have a space to be like oh my gosh this happened to me and it sucks mm. um so yeah I always get very excited when I find other Aussie creators yeah <laughs> um, for sure yeah we we are little in comparison to the rest of the world so I think it's nice that this space is growing in a way that is relatable and accessible to everyone Mm. um yeah yeah absolutely you decide that you wanted to share this with others and create this account mm-hmm. and get it out there when was that sort of in your mind well, I started so writing has always not always but as an adult I suppose it's been my outlet mm-hmm. um and I've never really thought of myself as an artistic person I think of myself as a creative person and in my head they're different things <laughs> um, so I I was 
that's you know, that's 2023. So 10 years ago, I, I was very chronically unwell with this like mystery illness. So mm-hmm. I used writing to kind of express that to people because it's really hard to just like sit and talk in the moment about what's going on. Yeah. And I found that to be really helpful just for me to get my thoughts out, but also to be able to give them to other people and be like, this is what I'm trying to say. And so yeah. from there, you know, I do a few little topical like blog stuff over the years about different social justice issues or, or things like that. And then, you know, that kind of stopped as life got busier. And and then when my son was born and I got really sick, I actually started writing it down just to try and remember what happened because mm. I was so neurologically impaired but also so full of uh, fentanyl which is a really heavy duty opioid um, Mm because they had to start my c-section before the anesthetic set in so he was like I'm just gonna pump you with as much as I can so I was really out of it for several hours in and out of consciousness in the ICU and so when I woke up like in the postnatal ward I was like I have no idea what just happened and I was just in flushes coming back to me yeah. But I started to just jot those down, knowing that at some stage I was going to need to write it out properly and, you know, make it sound nice. And then as I did that, like, I didn't have the intention of publicly sharing it. I think I was going to share it, like, with some close friends and family and just kind of go. Um, yeah, yeah. There was so much, like particularly the postpartum period as well, like there was so much that I couldn't verbalize that I could write about. And so I had planned to share it with some and then um, a few ladies in my life who are midwives and community nurses um, that I knew through work were very lovely and cared for me very well um, mm-hmm. after my son was born and they were like, this, is get- this would help people. Like if you shared this, it would help someone. Yeah. And I just thought, you know what, like on the off chance that there is one person that reads this and goes, oh my gosh, like, and has that moment that I had reading other stories, mm-hmm. you know, it's worth it. Like it's worth the vulnerability if you know that what you say and what you've experienced could help another person start to heal. And so I thought, okay, I'll just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was lovely. Like literally the day that I started the account, I got a message from someone on the Central Coast in New South Wales being like, oh my gosh, like you're the first person in Australia that I've come across who has had a story that's a bit like mine. And I was just so, like, it was just the nicest thing to hear. Obviously not that they went through that. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. You know, what I wanted happened like so fast. And, and that's been, it's really been twofold. Like it's helped me get a lot of stuff out that I needed to, but it's also helped a lot of people start to do that for themselves. And, and, you know, that's just, yeah, it's been really helpful for me. I think having something to occupy my mind when you're stuck with, you know, a feed or a nap or whatever it is, like having something I can focus on mm-hmm. and still have a purpose that's beyond just being a mom, like that. Yeah that's so important to me in a way that I didn't see coming like I I expected to just be so in love with motherhood and then it happened and I was like this is not what's in the movies like Mm, yeah (laughs) so I think having this has been really like salvation for me I think and for my uh, mental health but just having something to do like you know you just feel so so immobile sometimes as a stay-at-home parent and 
having having an outlet to still create and share and stuff has been essential for me. Um, yeah, and it's it's led me to some really lovely people. So that's always yeah. a bonus as well. Yeah, and and on that, um, I noticed on your your web your web page that you share stories from other mums. Mm. Um, yeah, and did that start to happen fairly quickly, or is that something that you sort of happened as um, you went along, meeting people and stuff? I think it's sort of that wasn't like a, an intention that I had in the beginning. It sort of organically happened, I think. Um, and not just about like people with preeclampsia, like there's so many things that I'm passionate about. Like as a social worker, you care about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, there's not really a topic that I'm not happy to share. But, mm -hmm. you know, I just started with like my sister's story. You know, she had a pregnancy loss and then um, had my nephew on Christmas Eve and had a really difficult postpartum period. And so, you know, she wrote that out. And, you know, the more I sort of, started sharing the more I thought there's so many things that are just like what I went through that someone else is sitting there going like okay I didn't have preeclampsia but I had a miscarriage and it sucked mm -hmm. so I think I I like to keep it fairly open and I know like all the advice you get with like social media is like you know find a niche and stick to it and I was like no there's too many things like <laughs> I look at some other accounts that have these beautiful like themes with their colors and their graphics and I'm like no that one's spotty and that one's got flowers and you know like, I just can't pick so I thought I might as well be like that with my website yeah <laughs> exactly um, yes yeah so I think it's been really cool like the amount of people um who do contact me and go like I want to I don't know where to start like so mm -hmm. at first it was just sharing stuff that people had already written out but now it's kind of at a you know guiding people through that and that's mm -hmm. been a real privilege to you know sit with someone well sit with someone online and yeah. kind of help them say what they want to say in a way that fits who they are and their experience and um, just the excitement and the emotion that they have in their story going out there and like it's just so special when someone kind of comes to me and says like I've never shared this before but I really want to and Know, that's just beautiful like yeah. it, it sort of creates a connection that you know I've never had in any other way um mm. yeah so it's been great and there's just so many people in my own life that I think like your story is amazing like people need to hear it um, yes yeah so I do nag I've nagged a few people into sharing <laughs> the stories <laughs> yes yeah Good on you. Um, but it's been great for them like I love seeing mm. other people have that moment of like oh okay people will hear my story and they've taken it seriously and you know, mm. my story gives value and yes, you know, yes. Storytelling is like the ancient form of communication. And I think mm. we we lost that a little bit over time. And so I think yeah. sort of stepping back into that has been uh more emotional than I expected. Um and just an honor. Like I always just feel so privileged when somebody trusts me with that. Like mm. it's a really big responsibility. So I yeah. do take it very seriously. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. I think people can sometimes think that what they've got to say isn't of value because they don't hold a status mm -hmm. in society or because they don't have 100,000 followers or, you know, because whatever reason, people can sort of, what's that, that, um, oh, I can't remember like what it's called. It? 
Yeah, they can they can really diminish the value of them of what they've got mm. to say. And it's even people that I've had on this on this podcast over the years. They're like, "Oh, I'm not creative. I'm not good enough. I'm not whatever." It's like I can see that you are. You know, <laughs> I'm not telling that you. You know, I'm not going to force people. You know, you have to be on the show. I just give people a bit of time to think about it, like just support yeah. them, and then people will come back to me and go, "Actually, yes, I would like to come on." You know, and that's like, yes. Like, yeah. that, I like, feel like, one, uh, but, but you also... know, like I want you to see yourself as we see yes. you, you know, like you have so much to add. And even someone the other day, just as they were wrapping up the episode, they're like, oh, I hope that was okay. I, I feel like I, what I've got to say isn't, isn't good enough or isn't big enough. It's like, seriously, like I, like you sit with someone for an hour or an hour and a half and you just take like what they've got to say is so valuable. Like yeah. I just, I hope, I want people to feel like empowered that they have a space and they have they have people that will find value in what they have to say you know absolutely build um, people up like and women we yeah. are our own worst critics as women <laughs> so yeah. I think we're, we're taught to believe that we need to be bigger and better than we are and so I do it myself all the time like I second guess everything I look at even stuff like my my story like medically speaking I should be dead like I survived something that even my specialist couldn't make sense of. So like I know that to be fact and still yeah. I'm just like, oh, it's not interesting enough. Like, you know, there's yeah. always yeah, you play it down. It was actually your, um, like, you know, your list of things that you talk about on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So when I read through that and there was the whole section on mum guilt and I was just like, and I mean, I've been reflecting on that so much because I think I had this realization of like, obviously I can relate to mum guilt, but it's just this extension of like woman guilt that I've had mm -hmm. my whole life. And, yeah. you know, it kind of like, yeah, I've been a bit obsessed with that idea since I read that. Um, yeah. a few weeks ago and I just thought oh my gosh like so much mental energy goes into being a woman that then is exacerbated as a mother because there's all these expectations on you and you know we really have this like you know I'm not enough of the stuff that I should be enough of but I'm too much of stuff and you know we have this contradiction that we just sit in all the time and yeah like just my own experience happened and I still doubt it. Like I went through yeah. it, I was there. Like <laughs> I yeah. have medical evidence that it happened and I still kind of go, oh, maybe I'm just making a big deal of it. Um, but yeah. it is a big deal. Like yes. I should make a big deal of it because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the same of any story. Like anything yeah. that's happened to you is important and relatable. And, you know, I'm trying so hard not to, or to challenge, I guess, that that little voice that I have of like, you've got to make sure that everything's perfect. Why? Like, mm. it's not possible. Yeah, <laughs> um, for who? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, little did you know that your email like unleashed this whole like patriarchy <laughs> war in my oh, head. Oh, yay! I'm so pleased. <laughs> <laughs> and my work here is done. No. <laughs> exactly. Then I read the rest of your list. I was like, oh, she won't mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it really did make me think about like, how I 
or where I place my value as a mum and just as a person Mm -hmm. um, and how much subtle stuff there is out there telling us what we need to be and, you know, like I am well and truly good enough for my son and I know that, but I still, you know, I don't know how many times a day I convince myself that's not true. Particularly because, like, my postpartum, I did not like my baby for a solid two months of his life. And that still makes me feel horrible to say out loud. But it's true. Like, I was so, like, wrecked from everything that happened and and separated from him. You know, I didn't get to meet him for 24 hours. And yeah, um, right. But even then, my brain just then went, oh, but other people have to wait more than that. Like, some people have to wait a week. yeah you're trying to justify it yeah I still didn't meet my baby for 24 hours and so I think that really affected the the way that I make sense of it is that it affected my ability to bond to him because even though I didn't meet him like I met him the next day or the next night and then I was still in the ICU for another day or so Mm -hmm. and then I was on a different ward to him because he was in special care and like I my c-section was so fast that I could barely walk like it was yeah you know I find out how long other c-sections went for and I think oh my god like mine was not that long like so it was very rough and like physically I was quite damaged I mean nothing was wrong but it was just Mm. super intense yeah so it was it was a full week like until we went home and then you know I I had this tiny human and I'd just look at him and be like I know I'm supposed to feel all these things for you and I don't and Mm. so that was like a whole journey and I think that really affected how I could view myself as a mom because in my head I was like what sort of mom doesn't like a baby like what sort of mom doesn't want to spend time with her baby you know because we get told this beautiful view of motherhood which it can be like I have those feelings now of just joy and you know I look at him and I want to eat him and yeah yeah. but when you don't have that from day one I think the world sort of wants you to believe that there's something wrong with you Mm. and there was something wrong with me that was completely out of my control and I needed a lot of help um but that didn't make me a bad mom you know Mm. I met all of his needs um yeah, and that sort of thing. So I think going into motherhood that way, it really, really made that voice very loud that told me that you know I wasn't enough of this. I was too much of that. Mm-hmm. My son deserved better. Like all that kind of thing was so loud for you know, the first little while of his life. And thankfully, you know, therapy and medication has made that voice much more quiet. But it's still there and Mm -hmm. I think that's what sucks being a woman like that voice is always in the back of your head kind of telling you that it's your fault or you need to do this or you need to do that yeah you haven't done good enough or you haven't done the right thing yeah yeah like I think women have the role we are given the role of making sure everything's great we get no credit for that and then if something goes wrong we get blamed for that Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
yes it's like an impossible task isn't it like (laughs) you're set up to fail right from the start yes yeah I even tried to do an experiment last week I was like you know what because I and I can't be the only one that's done this I bumped into like a chair my ankle like hit the chair leg and I apologized for the chair (laughs) and and I I instinctively yeah and I went what did I like I just apologized for a piece of furniture I was like that's how yeah brainwashed I've been to believe that everything is my fault just for existing I was like you know what I'm going to do an experiment in the next 24 hours I'm going to count how many times I apologize mm-hmm. not for like stuff if I've actually done wrong but just those yep. apologies that we make like as an instinct mm-hmm. I couldn't keep up not because there was heaps I just it's so natural in my brain to be like I'm so sorry I exist that I couldn't count them and I thought that's so sad like it's so sad my husband doesn't have that problem ever like I've never seen him apologize to a chair (laughs) I've never seen any man apologize to a chair so I think like Mm. there's so much work for me to do but it's exhausting that I have to Mm. and then like you're trying to do all of this at the same time as being a mom like yeah we have a lot on our shoulders and no one you can't see it but it's Mm. there and yeah, I just think the more honest we can be about motherhood, the good and the bad, like I don't think we just need to focus on the yucky parts, but mm. everyone has yucky parts. And if we pretend that we don't, we just we do such a disservice to each other as women mm. and as moms by convincing ourselves that we need to be perfect. And, you know, so I, I am so grateful to have found I think a community of people who are all trying to be really honest about the crap because yeah. we're all gonna have it you know we'll all have the great times too but I think we we need each other to be really honest about how hard it can be to yeah. transition into parenthood and then to stay there like yeah yeah and then all those up. stages that come through yeah. you know like it's caught up and then they change and it's like yeah oh, you're just constantly learning from scratch um yeah. and so I think yeah, I think stay-at-home parents are like the backbone of our society. Oh, <laughs> That's a whole different podcast. <laughs> Honestly, that 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 is another group of people I have so much respect for because I couldn't do it. I literally couldn't do it. I think I I have a certain amount of minutes in my day that I can be completely focused on my children, mm-hmm. and then I've got to go do something else because it's like <laughs> my brain just doesn't have the capacity for that. Um, I need that outlet. I need something for me. Mm. Um, but I feel like the patriarchy and th- that system that's been set up, it encourages us to compete against each other. You know, it pits Absolutely. us against each other. Oh, she's doing this. Oh, I can do this. Blah, blah. And and I'm, what you're saying, I totally 100% agree with, like sharing what's real, sharing the challenges and saying it's okay. We all have crap times, you know, like yeah. I'm, I'm getting so good now at just, you know, laughing about the fact that my kids can't find their shoes in the morning. Like it's just... You know, it's we never yeah. have a really smooth morning, and that's what life is. And then also, no. you know, being kind to myself and going, you're not gonna, you can't expect this, um, like TV or Hollywood version of life. You know, I found that really tricky with mm. my having both my boys. I never had a spontaneous, um, like going into labor, so I never mm-hmm. got that moment of, oh my water's broken down the street, or you know, like yeah. on the on the telly. Um, I never, I never had a, a, a normal, normal, I'll put that in air quotes because that's yeah. no such thing as normal, but a straightforward birth without complications. I've had 
one that was born in an hour and a half and one that was born by emergency C-section. Um, and you have these images in your mind of what's going to happen when the baby's born, they put it on you and this happens and you go home and everything's fine. It's like, it's bullshit. It's just setting you up for, for, for trouble and failure in your mind because that's not life. It's not real. No. So the more we can tell each other that what is happening to us is normal and is life and things are going to go wrong and things aren't always going to go the way we expect and the better we'll all be, I think. Absolutely. And like, even if you have your dream birth, and this is something that actually my therapist said to me, I think in, in our first session, I was very lucky that uh, I was able to get in to see um, a perinatal trauma therapist. So like she knows what she's talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, you know, I I see a lot of women like you that have births that are just horrendous, but I also see a lot of women who have the birth that they wanted and still were left feeling traumatized by something. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, I, I believe that women can birth and they can do it safely and they can do it freely. But I also believe there are a lot of us that even if all goes to plan, we're still going to walk away traumatized and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I just thought, oh my gosh, you think about like, like just the baby blues, the hormones. And my, my when my sister was about to have her baby, I said to her, I was like, this isn't going to make sense now, but it will. It's like for those first two weeks, you're going to feel like the world is ending and that it's never going to change, but it will. Like it just will. When you hit that sort of two-week mark and your hormones settle down, like the fog will pass and like yeah. you'll be able to see everything again. So I remember that first time she was like, what have I done? I don't know what I'm doing. Like yep. everything's wrong and it's never going to get better. I was like, I told you this was going to happen. I was mm -hmm. like, I told you it's predictable. And sure enough, within a fortnight, she's like, oh, this isn't so bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Like there's just yeah. things like that where we try and we make this sort of beautiful newborn bubble that, I mean, some people have and like good on you, but yeah. a lot of us don't. Like I feel like yeah. more people struggle than not. And mm -hmm. You know, we we should be honest about that because otherwise we make parents who just feel like they're broken from day one. Yeah, yeah. There's something wrong with you. Broken. Yeah, yeah. Really broken sucks because it's like there's something inherent about you that's wrong, and mm. that's had like fighting that and challenging that is it's a lot of mental work, and then you've still got a baby to keep alive. Like, yeah, that's it, isn't it? It's all encompassing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Listening to The Art of Being a Mum with my mum, Alison Newman. When you said before about um, not having that sort of the connection with your son mm. for a little bit of time, oh, I wanted to say something about that, but I'm not sure how to word it. And I don't want to keep talking about myself because this isn't my show. But um, Well, it is your show. <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's not my special episode. Um <laughs> So I'm conscious of that. So I might, but I'm sort of trying to lead into it with it. Um, sure. I had an experience where I was, because of this, the second child, the emergency C-section, I was so, and I might be a little bit selfish, but I was thinking I have to heal, right? My body's been cut open. How many ever layers you go through? It's the most mm -hmm. invasive surgery you can have, you know, yeah. and then I'm not allowed to lift things. I'm not allowed to drive. So I can't, you know, I'm physically bound to my home. I couldn't really walk that well. Like I was still recovering. Yeah. 
from that. And I thought, and I'm expected to take care of this baby. And I thought, this is bullshit. You know, how is this right? And I, so I was quite, I guess, resentful, probably the right word. Um, so mm-hmm. I found it difficult to sort of be all in, in this happy bubble land of baby, because it was like, hang on a second, what about me? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then I thought, oh, I can't say that because it's all about the baby. You know what I mean? Um, did you yeah, kind of... I felt the same. Yeah, yeah. And I think because my therapist asked me outright, she was like, do you blame your son for what happened? Like, do you, because I was talking about this, like, I don't feel anything. Like, I know that I'm supposed to be all mushy and love him more than anything and I don't feel it. And she was like, do you blame him for getting sick and nearly dying? And and I could honestly say no. But what I did blame him for was taking all of that time and I couldn't focus on healing myself. Like I felt like every time, you know, I'd need to do something and not just like, you know, the medical appointments, because I had a lot of appointments. Like I had an appointment a day for the first two weeks of his life. Yeah. Right. And so obviously I had to go to those, but you know, every time I wanted to pee, he'd start crying. And yeah. I'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't even go to the toilet without failing you as a parent. And so I did, I had a lot of resent, I think, towards him not I don't know resent sounds like a strong word but that's what Mm. it was and you know I just I'd look at him and I'd be like because of you I can't be okay and that's just that was my reality at the time and thankfully you know I have a husband who loves being a dad and you know spent the first week being really the sole parent and and he took that on and has just run with it you know from day one and not everybody has that um, so I'm very blessed in that way. I had a mom who was at my house every day, you know, to yeah. do all the chores. Like, you know, I had my little village there and I still was like, but I need to be me again. Like, and, mm-hmm. and I didn't know who that was. Like, yeah. I think after you have any kind of traumatic birth, figuring out who you are is hard because you can't go back to what you were. You're not who you want to be yet. You're just mm-hmm. this like in-between person that you don't recognize. And then you have this little squealing child that, you know, needs, they're relentless. Like newborns are relentless and they should be, they're supposed to be. (laughs) But when you're in that space of trying to just like survive, it's sort of the last thing that you need. (laughs) And so I did, I felt really like a lot of that um, struggle to attach to him was because he was the barrier at the same time and Mm. overcoming that was difficult like and I had lots of support and I still struggled so there are a lot of people out there and it, it made it gave me so much respect for the families that I've worked with in the past I was like you know what <laughs> the fact that like your kid is five and like I'm only hearing about you now I was like this is nuts like you know yes, the amount yeah. of stress that I was under with every possible support I could want um yeah it really made me realize who was in my corner um so that was a good thing but I definitely you know I'd look at this perfect little face and I'd be like, mm. <laughs> like yeah and that just felt yeah. like I felt like a monster I felt like some awful like troll that had crawled out from under the bridge and like hated the baby um but like that's how I felt I mm. felt like I was on my own I felt like I'd made this huge mistake and brought this child into the world that I didn't want and that you know, I really felt like I never would. Like I'd look at, you know, mums loving their kids and I'd be like, how do you do that? Like mm. I don't have that and I want that. And I did get there, but, you know, yeah. two months is a long time really when you think about how much 
I had to do to get to that point. And mm -hmm. so it's just, yeah, I think it feels, it goes against our nature as women to say out loud, like, I do not like my baby. And that, yeah. that we have to say it because yes. so many people feel that way. Like, yep. and that's what I mean. Like you can care for a child and meet all of their needs and still not have that joy. And mm -hmm. that's okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it'll absolutely. come one day. Might not be soon, but you know it happens slowly. And and thankfully, I got there in time. to have that space to heal like I don't think I think I'd still be struggling if I didn't have the ability to prioritize like it was a bit of a weird silver lining of a traumatic birth was that I I could leave him with people and know he was okay and you know I, I know so many mums that who have that beautiful oxytocin rush at birth who they'd be thinking about their baby non-stop and you know yeah. their brains our brains are supposed to be wired that way right and so, and I just be like, bye. Yes. <laughs> I'll see you later. Yeah. You that's, yeah, that's a good point, actually. Now you say it, I, I feel felt the same way, but I hadn't really put my finger on it. And I, because he, he, as soon as, you know, he was born, he was whisked off to the, the little box thing they put him in to yep. keep him warm. And he was also given formula. And that was like a no. weight off of my shoulders because not all on me anymore. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I am like the biggest formula fan in the world. I mean, yeah. I literally had no choice because my milk never came in. But uh, I was so desperate to breastfeed. And again, failed as a mother because I couldn't. Um, but formula meant that I could recover. Like mm. it meant that I could leave him with my husband. It meant that I could have full nights of sleep. Like, Yep. It just gave us something that I don't think we could have had if I had breastfed. Um, and honestly, if I have another one, I don't think I even want to try breastfeeding because I was so traumatized by the process of it not <laughs> working. Um, but, yeah. you know, I, I was actually I, reflecting not that long ago, and I this is one of those things I'd totally forgotten that had happened that sort of really uh, emphasized my where I was sitting in terms of, like, not having a lot of, that emotion for my my baby I took him for his six-week needles and um my sister was with me and you know the nurse was like giving me all this prep on like you're gonna be really distressed because he's gonna cry and it's gonna upset you and I said no I'll be fine mm -hmm. she was like no really like everyone says that and then they burst into tears so just be ready and in my head I was like I don't care like I don't care if he cries and then he did. He started crying and she looked at me and she's like patting my arm. She's like, he's okay. And I literally looked her in the eye and I went, he's had worse. <laughs> and she just raised her eyebrows and I could see her going, what is happening? My sister's sitting there with tears pouring down her face. Oh. You know, she yeah. was like, he's crying. And I was just sitting there so indifferent. And I, yeah. and I completely forgot that happened. And my sister the other day, she was like, yeah, you were not okay. <laughs> yeah yeah but that's how I felt like I yeah. sat there and I listened to him cry and I felt nothing mm. and like I that's just what happened I can't change yeah. it and you know it didn't mean that I didn't care about him or like yeah. I think I was yeah. 
I did a lot of distancing, I think, because I was just expecting to die. Like at any moment, yeah. I was in that real panic of, you know, it's not over yet. Because preeclampsia, you can develop up to six weeks after you have a baby. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So you can have postpartum preeclampsia or help syndrome or eclampsia, which are like the sort of more severe versions. Yep. And so I knew that I was still in that time frame. Like I, so I think I, I spent a long time trying not to get to know him because I thought if something happens to me, like it's going to be harder for you mm-hmm. to then not have a mom. Like, you know, he was this big, yeah. he didn't know what was happening, but that's how I was rationalizing it. And yeah. so it was hard, like, you know, mm-hmm. you're trying to survive and then care for a baby and, you know, still be yourself and find things that make you happy and, like yeah. you just get bombarded with all of these things um I just need a rest like mm, <laughs> resting yeah. as a parent is is difficult but um you know I'm glad that I prioritized it because I think it it gave me strength to then try and you know make the other things more positive or whatever um yeah but I mean again back to like being a woman resting is not allowed so you know even though I've just been sliced open to my very core and Mm -hmm. stitched back together really quickly and um you know all that stuff I was still like no like I don't deserve rest um Mm. but you know that's just what I needed so I think my body eventually just gave out and would just Mm -hmm. go to sleep like at a moment's notice and um you know yes my son had to wait sometimes but uh, it meant that I could be who I am now and yeah. you know I walk in and I have all of those feelings that I wanted and you know that stuff came in time yeah. um, but it is, it's hard when the only stories that you're seeing and hearing are people that you know have that moment where the baby's on their chest and they burst into tears and they you know kiss their partner and they have this beautiful golden hour and yeah. you know when that's all you see it's very hard to see your own experience as worth anything or real or like you just kind of look with envy at all of these videos like I still feel weird I still feel weird seeing birth videos of you know mums that have their babies immediately placed on them and like Mm -hmm. I just instantly still feel jealous and you know obviously I would not wish my experience on anyone but I you know I wanted that for me and I didn't get it and that was its own grief like mm. processing the loss of a, a birth experience that I felt good about was uh, a huge part of coming to terms with everything as well yeah yeah there's a lot a lot that happens when you have a baby <laughs> oh yeah that's serious isn't it and the thing that annoys me is like people say oh pe- women have been having babies for thousands of years blah 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 and it's like but hang on a sec so many things would have gone wrong over those thousands of years. And I wanted to ask, and I don't know if um, this might be an insensitive question, so you can tell me to bugger off if you want to, but did you ever, you sort of had any sort of feelings about when you talked before about being so close to death and surviving, mm. did you ever think like, imagine if I was, you know, in a third world country or imagine if I was stuck at home or, you know, how things would have gone? 100%. Um, particularly because preeclampsia, I mean, the fatality statistics, the vast majority, like, are in developing countries Mm -hmm. um, because they don't have, you know, prenatal care and all that sort of thing. But um, even, like, 
if I had done what my OB told me to do, I would be dead. Like if I had just gone home and relaxed and, you know, not thought about it and like, there's no way, like I would have had a seizure at home. My blood pressure went insane. And then I, I would have died at home. Like it absolutely would have happened. So yes, that was on my mind a lot. Like the timing of it was, was just, well, I, I see it as a miracle um, mm. as someone who has faith, but like I, so when you have preeclampsia in hospital, they check your blood pressure at least hourly. So mm. it's very frequent. Um, and mine was very unpredictable. So the medication wasn't really working. And so they were checking me super frequently. Um, in the space of half an hour, I went from like not concerning to our version of the code blue, which is called a MET call. Um, mm. And that's where everyone runs in and they do all your tests. And, you know, within 15 minutes of that, I started seizing. 20 minutes later, my son was born and I was off to the ICU. So like the speed at which all of that happened and like the fact that I was in hospital, like I'm so proud of myself for listening to my little gut instinct being like hey I know you're super paranoid with your health but let's go get checked anyway um I yeah I just thought and I still think so often of women who don't survive because they don't have access to what they need to um, whether that's a medical professional or medication or whatever like I think I was in the absolute best place I could have been when that happened um And even then it was a close call. So mm. it's like, I just, yeah, I marveled at the timing of everything. And I just, my heart breaks every time I read a story about um, a mom, either a mom who, who dies or a baby, like, because mm. preeclampsia can very quickly lead to a placental abruption, which um, is very difficult for a little one to survive. And just the number of stories that I've read that sound so similar to mine, but they end with somebody passing away is heartbreaking. And, Mm. um, you know, regardless of what country you're in, but particularly for vulnerable women, um, you know, whether that's your racial background or geographically where you live, like there's just so much that factors into what kind of care you get. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I can't fault the care that I had. Like it was, absolutely spot on and and saved my life but yeah the amount of people that don't have that is just so upsetting Mm. um and preeclampsia is just such a weird like no one knows why it happens like it's still this big mystery that affects so many people and um particularly you know in developing countries or even in some rural areas where you're really far away from healthcare. like I just think oh my gosh like if I even I was thinking about like um, I brought my mat leave forward because mm-hmm. of my blood pressure and I was like I could have still been at work like yeah I could have still been obviously it was a Saturday so you know wouldn't have been at work but like that could have happened on a weekday like the first day that I got really really sick was a Wednesday at lunchtime like yeah. and so I just couldn't stop thinking about like the what ifs mm-hmm. like, and I'm a big what if person yeah most uh, anxiety people are but I think I have to dwell on them a little bit. Like I have to give them some space to play out. Otherwise they just plague my mind. So yeah, you work through them. So many, yeah. Yeah. There's so many aspects of my son's birth that I was like, oh my gosh, what is that? What is that? Mm-hmm. Um, and 
thankfully, <laughs> none of them came to pass. But yeah, it's it's very surreal, I think, to look at what could have happened mm. very easily, what could have happened. Yeah. Uh, and I'm reminded of that because every time I see a doctor, they want to know like what happens to my blood pressure and they look at me like, oh, I don't think you're right. Like, I don't think that's possible. I was like, and yet, yes, yes, it's possible because here I stand. So, like, I get this reminder at every appointment, like, oh, there's no way you could have survived that. I think, and I know that's meant, like, as a yay, but it doesn't make me feel better. hope to that in my lifetime we see an answer mm. um to how to prevent it like because that's what's scary about it you can do everything right and have no risk factors and you can still get it mm-hmm. and so like how do you how do you how do you fight that yeah <laughs> I think, um, i'm very passionate about like research and all that kind of thing now um, <laughs> and awareness just because you know i had everything i needed to know what it was and it still took me by surprise so yeah. Uh, the amount of people that you know if they have a dodgy healthcare provider or you know mm-hmm. there's so many things that could lead to you not not taking any notice or just pregnancy being uncomfortable like there's so many symptoms of preeclampsia that you could just go oh well you know I'm pregnant so yeah. therefore I'm supposed to feel like shit and like sometimes yeah. that's true <laughs> but I yeah. think like yeah it's just it's so important for women to encourage someone else knows better so we, yeah. we couldn't possibly be right we yeah. need to be like our own hype girl like I yep. think that's my like goal this year is to try and be like yes like yes. I know what I'm talking about and I don't care if you think it's stupid <laughs> mm. yeah look this oh there was a post I don't know how long ago I saw it on Instagram but it was basically people sharing their stories of times when and this was in in labor particularly when they weren't mm. listened to and the amount of stories, it was just appalling. And some of the outcomes yeah. were quite serious. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I didn't have a, I had a little, a little moment like that where I, um, my, like I said before, my son was born in an hour and a half and this, he was my first delivery. 
and um, the doctor sort of joked, I'll see you in 10 to 14 hours. You know, he went off to do a, a cesarean or something. And I literally felt within about half an hour that I felt like a, I needed to push. Like I felt like this, yeah. like I needed to do a poo basically. I felt, it described yeah. it as though there was a bowling ball coming out of my bottom. That's how it felt. <laughs> And yeah. I said to the nurse, I feel like I've got to push. And she just looked at me with this shock on her face and she she just, she freaked out and she went and got him and he'd come in and he, and he just went, surely not like this. And I just thought, you fucker. Gross. And anyway, he did an internal and he could feel the baby's head. And I was like, why don't you listen to us? We know what's going on in our bodies. Like, damn you it all. Was, Makes like me so cross. Yeah, it shouldn't be revolutionary for a doctor to believe that you're not feeling good like yeah. it's literally your job yes to deal with sick people so yeah. if I'm sitting here whether that's I'm ready to push or whether that's like hey doc I've had a headache and dizziness for like two years and I don't know what's wrong like it's actually your job to listen to me and to believe me and you know what my husband's never walked away from an appointment being made to feel like he doesn't know what's wrong like mm. ever. Yeah. and he just He's always, I, I love him dearly. He's always like just shocked when he hears these stories of like, this actually happened. Mm-hmm. Like I had an appointment once I went in because I have, um, uh, it's a form of tinnitus that like you can hear your heartbeat really loudly and it was keeping me up at night. Like I couldn't sleep. Yep. So it was really bad. And, you know, because I don't trust doctors sometimes, I Googled it and I was like, okay, this could be a brain tumor. So I should probably go check. So <laughs> I went into this doctor, I explained it. And he told me that, you know, I probably just need to drink more water. Oh, um, And then looked at my file and saw that I have um, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and started mm-hmm. to talk to me about that. And I said, oh, no, like, I'm not, I'm, I'm managing that, like, with my other doctor. I'm just here because I want to check that this isn't serious. Mm-hmm. And he proceeded to lecture me on my fertility for about 15 minutes. Oh. And, you know, I really should start thinking about, like, trying to have a baby soon at this point. Uh, I was not with my husband. I was not in a place where I wanted to have a baby, yeah. anything like that. And I was like, no, no, I'm just here about my ear. Like mm. I'm here to talk to you about a noise in my ear and you're trying to talk to me about my ovaries. Like this yeah. actually isn't any of your business, right? Yeah, now. you're overstepping your um, boundaries here, mate. Yeah, there's only so much you, like energy you have to challenge that in the moment. Like I think, again, an experience I hear so often, including my own, as women is you sit in this appointment just completely astounded at what you're hearing mm-hmm. that the first time you try and challenge it they shut it down and it's like you know whatever like do your speech yeah. I'll go home I'll google it some more and figure it out myself. yeah 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 we shouldn't have to resort to google mm-hmm. we should be able to go to any doctor and say hey these are my symptoms mm-hmm. pretend I'm a man what could it be like <laughs> yeah and I think and I've, look, I've had these experiences with female healthcare providers too. I think mm-hmm. it's it's not just men, but I immediately have like my like antennas go up if I have to see a male doctor because mm-hmm. I just, my first ever experience that I was talking about at the start of this 10 years ago, I got Lyme disease when I was in America. Yeah, right. But we don't have that here, quote unquote. So there's no testing for it. There's no anything. So I was sick with this for nearly two years. But oh, at the God. start of it, um, you know, I had all these symptoms. I went to a GP that I just could get into. So I was 18 at the time, or no, sorry, just 19. So a baby, a baby mm. with no backbone. And so I sat down and, you know, they asked you if there's a possibility you can be pregnant, which is fine because they have to. And I said, no. 
and he came back to it and he was like, are you sure? And I said, yeah, well, I've never been sexually active, so I'm pretty confident. And he literally, he raised his eyebrows and said to me, I find that hard to believe. Oh, um, fuck off. What do you say to that? Like, oh. I, I, I dare anyone to say that to me now. Like, oh, with the uh, amount of no crap given that I have now, mm-hmm. man, he wouldn't know what hit him. But back then, like a baby 19-year-old with no self-esteem, I just, I was like, what the heck? And that was my first experience of like that feeling of going, okay, so you just think I'm crazy. Like you mm-hmm. don't respect me at all. So I think like it's, it happens, it's real. And and then, you know, fast forward to when I was pregnant and I was being told that I needed to go to an obesity clinic at 33 weeks pregnant. And I was told, like, he told me I needed to lose weight. And oh. I was like, this baby's got another like kilo or two to go. Like in what way can I lose weight? She's like, well, at the very least you can't gain any weight. And I was like, okay, again, my baby's still got to like <laughs> chug out. Like yeah, yeah, exactly. I was just looking at her like she was crazy. Mm-hmm. And well, I mean, she was crazy, but <laughs> it was just, it was mental. I was like, and yeah. I went home crying. Cause I was like, this is not like, you know, I had self-esteem issues with my weight anyway, but I was like, this, mm. why, why are we talking about this? You know, yeah. and then my next appointment, I was told, you know, all of these symptoms, just don't worry about it. You just need to relax more, like enjoy your maternity leave. Um, I want to go back and find one and be like, can you just look up my phone? Actually, and like read, I was, yeah. That day that happened a week I was going to ask that <laughs> actually, if, if any of these people you've come across again and be like, actually, I almost died. So no, I haven't because I went, I switched hospitals. So I had like shared care with the high risk hospital. Um, and that's where I ended up going because they had just completely redone like their birthing suites and everything. And they have, it's really good. It's basically an emergency department, but for pregnant people. And yeah. so I went there because I was like, okay, you guys know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm trying to, and when I say trying to, I mean, it's on my list and never at the top of my list because I have a baby. Um, but <laughs> the social work team at the hospital I birthed at um, are like open for feedback for you know, however long after your birth. And so I plan to have a meeting with them and just kind of go through because it's all in the same um, local health district. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I kind of point out like hey can we have a look at like who I saw at this thing because they need to know that when I sat there and I told them that I had a headache and that my vision was blurry and that my right shoulder was hurting and you know I was swelling up so much that like I could push my finger in and it would just leave a dent like it was disgusting mm-hmm. and like all of that I was just told to relax and not to worry about it and when you look at a list of symptoms of preeclampsia they're all there like so it's a matter of actual education like I mean I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a part of me that wanted to just be like like excuse me I nearly died but I also want them to do better like I want to know that the next person they see that runs through everything that's happening they don't just dismiss it and go oh well you know you're pregnant you're likely to be uncomfortable you know yes you're likely to be uncomfortable but not to this extent Mm, that's it um yeah, so I do like I'm quite passionate about healthcare providers not just knowing more because they know the symptoms, they know them, but seeing it and hearing it and actually taking it seriously. Yeah. Um, because you don't want to be the doctor that told someone they were fine and not to worry about it and then they die and that's on you. Like mm. 
Yeah, that's it, isn't it? It's, it's that yeah. simple. Like your job is there to catch this stuff and to mm. help prevent it and manage it. And if you can't do that, then maybe find another job. Mm. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? I I really saw and and just the way that they were treated. Like I had mm. one midwife; she was lovely. Um, she's probably maybe late forties and. She was the first one to catch my blood pressure doing the weird thing where it like split and went in two opposite directions. And so she went and grabbed like one of the OBs and he was a young, um, a young guy. And he was so dismissive to her, like when she was telling him what had happened and he was like, no, that's not possible. And then he checked my blood pressure and it did the same thing. And then yeah. he went and like announced it to everyone because it was so interesting. Oh, like, like he'd medical, found it. Medical. <laughs> And I just like looked at her and I was like, what just happened? And mm. she just sort of rolled her eyes and she's like, oh, young doctors, like they're all the same. And I was mm. like, I know that, but like still, you know, I'm watching this guy who looked younger than me berate a woman with 20 plus years midwifery experience mm. or, you know, a new thing that he hadn't seen. And I was like, no, like, uh, yeah, it's know, bullshit. like the midwives are the ones that I was crying on and that were helping me like, try and walk after three days in an ICU bed they were the ones helping because my c-section was so fast like by the time I got back to postnatal they they didn't even have time to wipe me up like I was still covered like in my own blood it was disgusting and so like you know I was grossed out by that but obviously midwives they've seen everything so they don't care but they were so gentle and kind and like the doctors would come in for 30 seconds every day and be like yep good right bye you know, but midwives, they were the ones, that, like, I had a midwife who, the one who pressed, like, did the met call, uh, she came and visited me um, three days after, like, in the postnatal ward mm. just to check in, and I was like, that's so nice, like, yeah. I know that I could go and find the doctor, and he wouldn't have a clue who I was, he wouldn't remember yeah. me from three days ago, yeah. so I think there's, yeah, there's, at every level, women are really disadvantaged and made to believe that we don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, when yeah. actually we made the world go around. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my gosh, you could not have said it better. I feel like sometimes, like if we all just went on strike, what would happen to the world? You know, if we just went, no, nope, not doing it anymore. You guys sort it Some out. Some countries <laughs> have successfully passed some pretty significant legislation because women go on a sex strike. <laughs> story seriously look it up it's like oh, the best yeah, news right. articles you'll ever read and it's yeah. in countries that would surprise you too like wow. this is not happening in the developed world and no. i was just like oh my gosh <laughs> i'm gonna <laughs> go with that that sounds awesome yeah so we, we oh, have wow. a lot of power and we do have a lot of power yes when men don't get what they want it's evident yeah. how much we have but yeah. it's not taken seriously when we're actually trying to like use it for you know beneficial things yeah oh absolutely that's the thing you can <laughs> sometimes you can feel like so amazing and wonderful like we birth we bring the next generation into the world and we raise them and then somebody like just take the piss out of you at the petrol station because you don't know how to put the hubcap on or, you know it's just something like that like and then you're like oh <laughs> this is where i fit like, in the world it's like when if i say something and then a man copies exactly what i say and then everyone goes oh idea and i oh. used to just be silent and now i literally go oh i wish someone else had said that first like i always have to point it out now because i just get so mad yes you can't let <laughs> it go my voice like yeah is there an echo in here <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh and my gosh is, a lot of like 
a lot of guys that I know and love don't even realize they do it. Like mm-hmm. that's how subtle it is. Yeah. And I was, how's this for a proud wifey moment? So my husband, we were having dinner and he goes, I caught myself mansplaining today. <laughs> oh, good for him. I was like, what? Good on you. I realized halfway through the sentence and I immediately apologized. Oh, <laughs> I was like, he's a little feminist, isn't he? Good on I him. I, Love know. It. I was like, you have no idea how much I've changed you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's been so good. Like it, it, it's been really uh I love when men are happy to learn mm-hmm. about their own privilege like I think it's yes. um it's only a good thing and there's actually if you've not read it I feel like you'll like it there's a book uh called uh see what you made me do by Jess Hill and it's actually right. about um domestic abuse but her chapter on patriarchy is just phenomenal like yeah, even right. if you could isolate that chapter on its own mm-hmm. it is the best um, breakdown and she's an Aussie so it's using Aussie statistics which I really like mm-hmm. but I think just writing it in such a way that like my husband read it and was like oh my gosh I had no idea this is how much the patriarchy hurts me and yeah. will hurt our son yeah and like that sort of thing so it's definitely it's a resource that I recommend to everyone when I talk about mm. this which is often oh, um I'll look but, it up yeah, yeah for it's sure really good. yeah it's really good um, and I think it's really powerful if if a guy can read something about patriarchy and not feel offended by it, mm-hmm. it's written well. Like, Yeah, like he's not being attacked and he's yeah. going to feel like his place is being threatened, I guess. so much for spending so much time with me today i've loved chatting with you and going over some some big topics and breaking some stuff yeah. down it's my favorite thing to do <laughs> love it thank you for going with me <laughs> and thank you so much for sharing so honestly i really appreciate it and i know that the listeners will appreciate hearing from you so thanks again it's been wonderful my pleasure and all the best and yeah I'll keep i'll keep my eye out on you on your instagram and I'd laugh you. along with you <laughs> Thanks for your company today. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love you to consider leaving us a review, following or subscribing to the podcast, or even sharing it with a friend you think might be interested. The music you heard featured on today's episode was from Alemjo, which is my new age ambient music trio comprised of myself, my sister Emma Anderson and her husband John. If you'd like to hear more, you can find a link to us in the show notes. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, please get in touch with us via the link in the show notes. I'll catch you again next week for another chat with an artistic mum.